Please turn your Bibles to Micah. We're going to turn to chapter 1. Uh, let's stand and give authority to God's holy word. We'll start reading together at verse 8 of Micah chapter 1. This is God's holy and infallible word. Because of this, I must lament and wail. I must go barefoot and naked. I must make a lament like the jackals and a mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, for it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all at beth le Roll yourself in the dust. Go your way, inhabitant of Shaphir, in shameful nakedness, the inhabitant of Zaana. Uh, does not escape. Lament of Beth Ezel. He will take from you its support, for the inhabitant of Morath becomes weak, waiting for good, because a calamity has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness, harness the chariot to the team of horses, O inhabitant of Lachish, she was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, because in you were found the rebellious acts of Israel. Therefore, you will give parting gifts on behalf of Morsheth Gath. The house of Akzib will become a deception to the kings of Israel. Moreover, I will bring on you the one who takes possession, O inhabitants of Mershah. The glory of Israel will enter Adullam. Make yourself bald and cut off your hair because of the children of your delight. Extend your baldness like the eagle, for they will go from you into exile. Let us pray together. Blessed Lord, our glorious God, help us by your Holy Spirit to receive and to learn much from this prophecy concerning uh, the destruction, the utter destruction both of Samaria and, and Judah uh, and Jerusalem. We pray, O oh Father, that you would guide and lead us as we study and help us to apply this text to our lives today. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Um, some people think that when a preacher gets up and wants to preach a fire and brimstone message, you know, that kind of message that talks about hell or maybe reminds you of Sodom and Gomorrah, God raining fire and brimstone down on Sodom and Gomorrah, you might say to yourself, well, it looks like he really enjoys that. And that's pleasant to him, that he, he, he gets great joy in, in, in saying those things and proclaiming a message like that. Well, let's take it a different route. What about a session? What about a session who has to tell someone in the church, we don't think that you should be taking the Lord's Supper because of some particular sin. And we don't think that you are repentant over that sin or, 
we don't think that you've demonstrated fruit fitting with repentance, like John would, would say. Therefore, we think that you should not partake of the Lord's Supper. I don't think many people in this session find joy in that. They, I don't think they get a power trip in that. Now, there might be some people, but I don't, I'll tell you that the session here does not get joy out of that. It's a grief to, to us to have to say those things. And I find that in today's text, the prophet Micah had grief in giving his message. His message was one of judgment, and we find today probably more than a lot of other passages, but probably not as much as in, in Jeremiah, there was great grief here mentioned with Micah and having to give his message of judgment. Now, before we look at the sorrow that Micah experienced, I want us to look at the prior context. We'll go back to chapter 1 in the beginning verses, and mentions in verse 1, who is this prophecy of judgment concerning? It said it's, it's concerning Samaria and Jerusalem, verse 1. Verse 3, the Lord promises that he was coming forth from his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. In particular, uh, it says that he was going to make Samaria a heap of ruins in the open country, a planting place for a vineyard. He was going to lay bare her foundations. Now, that's some dire language, but it's the language of someone having a field full of weeds that's producing no grain, no fruit, and what are you going to do if you just have a field full of weeds? You've got to plow it under so you could replant. And that's basically what he's saying. They're going to be so utterly destroyed, they're going to be stripped down to the foundation, and I'm going to plow it down and plant anew, is what he was going to do with both Samaria and Jerusalem. Now the reason for God's judgment upon these Jewish peoples, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, was because of idol worship and what we call spiritual harlotry. They were like a wife who was unfaithful to her husband, and they committed spiritual harlotry or adultery. But he uses the word harlotry in chapter 1 there. As we look at today's text, the main focus is that the messenger of God can often have grief in proclaiming God's judgment of sinners. The messenger of God can often have grief in proclaiming his message of judgment to sinners. And we'll look at this in two main points. Micah's grief and ours. And secondly, we'll look at hope for the children of delight. So let's look at this first main point, Micah's grief and ours. Look at verse 8a as in Adam. Because of this, I must lament and wail. I must go barefoot and naked. Now, is he talking figuratively or not? Um, now, the, there's a group of scholars, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, and they say that when we read the word naked here, it's referring to divesting the upper garment. So, like, as if he was just taking off the upper garment. Uh, and they, they cite a particular passage in proof of that, and they, they cite Isaiah 20. Uh, let's keep our place in Micah and go back to Isaiah. Isaiah 20. I think you'll find that Isaiah 20 might be, maybe it's a little bit more than what 
Jameson and Fawcett and Brown would say. Isaiah 20, verse 2. At that time, the Lord spoke through Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loosen the sackcloth from your hips and take your shoes off your feet. And he did so, going naked and barefoot. And the Lord said, Even as my servant Isaiah has gone naked and barefoot, barefoot three years as a sign and token against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead away the captives of Egypt and the exiles of Cush, young and old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, to the shame of Egypt. But that right there is talking about the nakedness that would happen. Uh, we don't know exactly what degree of nakedness Isaiah had going on there. Let's turn back to Micah. Um, so being barefoot and naked is also similar to, it's, it's, you could say this is a, an expression of grief done in the outward form. Uh, another example is putting on sackcloth and, or tearing one's clothes. Well, here we have even another example in verse 16. If you look at the end of that section of the chapter there, verse 16, he says, Make yourself bald and cut off your hair. Because of the children of your delight, extend your baldness like the eagle, for they will go from you into exile. Because of the grief of what was going to happen to these, uh, what were called the children of delight, he was going to shave his head and go bald. Now, normally, if, if you go bald because of nature and it falls out on, on your own, uh, you know, that's, that's something that happens, but most people don't just shave their head out when they're just out of the ordinary here. But he, this is what the prophet did. He shaved his head out of grief. Uh, Micah's crying later is seen to be something like animals in today's text. Look at 8b. 8b. I must make a lament like the jackals, and a mourning like the ostriches. Now, there are other translations that mention other animals, but um, I kind of know what a, what a jackal sounds like. I, I'm kind of interested in wanting to look up a video of what a weeping ostrich sounds like. But to me, I think that we don't quite understand these sort of animals. But you could think of, uh, you probably heard an animal that's hurt and then wailing. And that's kind of what's going on here. He's wailing like a, not even, doesn't even sound human. It sounds like, a, like a, a, a cat that's dying. Verse 9, uh, he mentions Judah's position being like a wound that would not heal. It could not be cured. And verse 9 says, For her wound is incurable, for it has come to Judah it has reached the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. Now, you might think in our day and age that we can heal any wound because we have advanced medicine, but when I did home health, we had people who had chronic wounds that lasted for years, and it took forever for them to heal, and some people ended up dying with those wounds. And that's kind of what he's saying here. 
concerning Ju- uh, Jerusalem. Um, there are matters of God's judgment that cannot be helped and that cannot be cured. And here is an example here. Verses uh, 10 and 15, Micah mentions, um, he mentions other small towns. Um, it wasn't just Samaria. It wasn't just Jerusalem that held the guilt. Now, if you remember, he mentions Samaria and Jerusalem. Why? Samaria, capital of the northern kingdom. Jerusalem, capital of the southern kingdom, or Judah. It's not just the two capital cities. It's the little towns. They all shared in the same sorts of sin that was guilty uh, upon the rest of the people. Let's look at verse 13 as one example. Um, O inhabitant of Lachish, she was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion because in you were found the rebellious acts of Israel. Now, it's... So again, it's not just these major cities that are at fault, but it's even the little towns. Now, we might study today's passage. We might study these minor prophets, and we say, well, what does it matter to us that God judged a people long ago, in centuries back? What does it matter to us today? What can we learn from this today? Or is this only an Old Testament matter? Or is there something pertaining to us in the New Testament where we find a parallel? And one of the best places to look here, keep your place in Micah, is we want to do turn to Revelation 10. Revelation 10, starting at verse 8. Now remember, John is given a revelation, and it's not a pleasant one. It's a revelation of judgment. And we believe judgment upon Israel in 70 A.D. is, is the pertaining matter going on in, verse, in chapter 10. But in Revelation 10, starting in verse 8, says this, Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying, Go, take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands in the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And in my mouth it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. And what was he going to prophesy? Coming judgment. The word of God is like that. It's sweet. It's delicious. It's beautiful in what it's food unto us. But there is mention of horrible judgment in the word of God. And sometimes when you have to proclaim a terrible judgment, then there's an an element of bitterness to that, isn't there? We need strong warnings today in the church. And there are even some pastors who need very strong warnings. Um, Many of you are 
are probably very familiar with Charles Stanley, and he was a he was a, a pretty fine uh, Baptist preacher. Well, his son did not follow in his footsteps. Andy Stanley. Um, Andy Stanley. Uh, I I saw him preaching. Supposedly, I guess you call it preaching. Um, but he was saying this: the truth and f- that truth and faith does not rise and fall because of the accuracy or the inerrancy of 66 ancient books of the Bible. It rises or falls on the identity of a single individual, Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, it doesn't matter whether these books are infallible or not. It matters who Jesus is. Well, how are you going to find out who Jesus is without these books? And I, I, I... I even go so far to say that the Jesus that Andy Stanley is proclaiming to people or telling people about is not the Jesus of the Holy Bible. Because Andy Stanley goes up and talks to a group of pastors at a conference, telling them, well, my, my homosexual uh, people that come to my church are more diligent at serving, and I wish everyone was like them. He's commending the homosexuals who come to his church and he, he basically disregards the passages of Scripture that says it's a particular sin. Now, there needs to be harsh warnings against such sin and compromise. But at the same time, we shouldn't delight in having to condemn someone over such a matter. But they need to have that stern, firm warning. Now, today's passage, back again in Micah, go back again to Micah 1. It's not all doom and gloom. But there's not, I guess you could say, there's not a a lot of hope here in this particular section of Scripture, except toward the very end of the chapter. Let's look at verse 16 again. Make yourself bald and cut off your hair because of the children of your delight. Extend your baldness like the eagle, for they will go from you into exile. There are people who, in this text, are called the children of delight. Now, are there children of delight of those who were going to go into exile and they were grieving because even their little kids and their babies were going to go in exile with them? That could be some of it. But they, we could say, are still children of God's delight even in the fact that they had to go into exile. How do we know that? Because God even preserved his people in the midst of exile. Daniel and his friends, uh, Isaiah, I'm sorry, not Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, other prophets like that had gone into exile and God kept and preserved them. I think Daniel is a fantastic example of God's preserving his people, his children of delight, even in casting them into the discipline of going into exile. Um, Righteous men suffered because of the sins of the people. Now, think of this. The children of God's delight suffering exile. Is that just something for times past, or is there an element where God still disciplines today? And without doubt, God does still discipline 
us today. I want us to turn to uh, Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12. Now you think about the children of Israel going into exile, being disciplined in that fashion, and here God still says he disciplines his people, yes, even in the New Testament era and even today. Hebrews 12, starting at verse 6. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he, that is God, disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness." All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the fruitful, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. There's a lot in that passage. But notice this. God disciplines those he loves. Just as he disciplined his covenant people by casting them into exile, and just as God disciplined his, his people in many times and eras, when he disciplines his church for those who are called according to his purpose, that discipline is not to be despised because God uses it to help us grow in holiness. Look again at verse 10. He disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. Now that discipline that happened to the people of Israel and the people of Judah going into captivity, it was gruesome for a time. It was sorrowful for a time. But for those who survived that discipline, it came about um, to, for their good. There is no hope of salvation unless we teach what the Bible says. And not all of the Bible is going to be received as well as some other people would like it to be received. Now, here, an example for this is that those who are under teaching, such, from, such as from Joel Osteen, there's very little mention of sin. There's very little mention of hell. But if we don't teach on those doctrines and we don't teach on a coming judgment, what is it that Jesus came to save us from? Did he come to save us from stress in the workplace? Did Jesus come to save us from being spared out from a horrible, depressing life here in this life. Jesus came primarily to save us from the wrath to come. 
The wrath to come is the reason why Jesus came and died for sinners such as us. Not that we would have our best life now, but primarily to save us from the wrath to come. Now, I know that we like to maybe say, you know, get on the case of some of these individuals, but primarily salvation is to spare us from eternal wrath. But God does, by His Holy Spirit, give us fruit for better living even here and now. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, according to Galatians 5.22. Keep in mind this, that the messengers of God, when they proclaim the message, though, of judgment, it can be something that brings them grief. Micah experienced such great grief, wailing like an animal. And even for those who preach the gospel, they may suffer sorrow from time to time. Your session, especially if we have to exercise church discipline, we especially need your prayers and support in that fashion, if that is the case. Because it is something that is, you could say, there's, a, there's an element of grief and sorrow in that. But again, keep in mind, there is hope for the children of delight. I believe those who are called according to God's purpose are, you could say, the children of God's delight. They are the apple of God's eye, and yes, even though they suffer discipline, even though they suffer, they suffer uh, chastisement in this life, yes, it's for your good and for your growth and holiness. Let's pray together. We thank you, our beloved Lord, that you have called us according to your purpose. And yes, there has been great grief that oftentimes many of us have suffered uh, in this life. But we pray that you would help us to remember that the, the sufferings of this life cannot be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us through Christ Jesus our Lord. Help us, we pray, to endure the suffering of this life and to embrace Jesus Christ, by true, sincere, saving faith. Work in us. Help us to heed the warnings from the Old Testament uh, proclamations of judgment. Help us to flee the sin that was so easily besetting them and that so easily besets us. Have mercy upon us and give us your grace and peace, for we ask these things in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. For our closing hymn, I would like us to look at 283. We'll turn to 283 and stand and sing, Ferris, Lord Jesus.